We are studying the book of Genesis this year. We've arrived at chapter 3. You want to turn to chapter 3? You're going to find that helpful. Probably one of the best known uh, chapters in the, in the Bible for various reasons and probably one of the most attacked and least understood chapters in the Bible. Is it coming up behind us? Is it Genesis 3? I'm not going to read Genesis, but we are going to jump in and out as we work through it. Let's just pray again. Lord, we love you. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that we can even be in this room and open a book when there's so many brothers and sisters around the world who are uh, facing uh, persecution, unable to even meet together. And Lord, here, here we are, able to peaceably come together and to sit under your precious word. May you not only speak to us clearly, Lord, but, uh, Father, move us deep within our souls that we would learn to love you more and trust Christ more. In his name we pray. Amen. So you don't have to be a Christian to understand that the world's in a bit of a mess right now. I don't think it's any more messy or chaotic but it's not any different, I don't think, than it's ever been in uh, human history. But one thing that we have observed as a society, particularly here in Scotland and across the rest of the UK, is this, that since COVID, millions and millions of people are struggling with mental health. I've said this phrase before, it's an absolute tsunami of mental health issues, just sweeping across the land. Suicide is as in the young as this church knows from painful experience multiple times in recent years and as we know from many young men and women in our community, suicide's at an all-time high. People are struggling badly. Say this to you constantly. Forget the Instagram posts and the pictures and, you know, the side that people portray themselves on social media, because it's all false. People are struggling to find meaning in life. Why are we here? That's a question everyone's going to ask themselves at one time or another, whether they believe in God or not, whether they believe in Jesus or not. Why are we here? Is there any point to this life? Why? Why all the pain... Why all the sickness? Why all the evil? Why all the death? These are big, big questions. And it doesn't matter whether we believe in God or not. It doesn't matter whether we believe in Genesis 3 or not. Every single human being on the planet, regardless of their belief system, agrees on the fact that evil exists. Okay? It exists. Everybody agrees. It's not hard to see evil around us every single day. And some of us work in jobs where we see more evil than the average person. And every single human being on the face of the planet at some point in their life is going to have to wrestle with how this world has come to be in the state it is in. We're constantly about the marvels of new technology and 
the wonders of science and the breakthrough of this and the breakthrough of that. But none of it, none of this technological advancement has changed the human heart for the better one little bit. It's made us more comfortable. It's made our houses warmer. It's made our lives better in so many ways. And yet the human heart is still as evil now as it ever was since the fall. And your atheist friend's got to answer that question. Where do you think evil comes from? If we're evolved creatures, if we're evolved beasts, if we're getting better and faster and fitter and stronger, why is wickedness and evil just the same or even more so in our generation? And the thing is this, Christians have an answer to this question. Christian will never say, I wonder why the world is like it is, because we know why the world is like it is, because the Bible teaches us clearly why the world is the way it is. The Bible tells us why the world is a state. The Bible tells us why we are a state. The Bible is clear. It tells us why are we as human beings, as individuals, the way that we are. We're capable, aren't we, as people, as humans, of amazing acts of love and generosity, aren't we? Amazing. And yet, at the same time, we are capable of mean, cruel, violent, wicked, destructive behavior. We're a mess, all of us, of contradictions. We can sing the songs as loud as we like and you know, dress as nicely as we like on Sunday and smile as pleasantly as we like. But we all know, don't we, we walk into this room, that we are a mess of contradictions. We've messed up this week, haven't we, some of us, in more ways than one. We've thought evil or ill about another person. Probably multiple times. We've engaged in a bit of gossip and spread a few lies. And every single one of us knows what it's like when we know there's things we shouldn't do, yet we do them, and there's, we know there's things we should do, we don't do. And Genesis 3 here tells us absolutely everything we need to know what is wrong with the world and the human race. And it all boils down to one word, and that one word is sin. I've got four simple questions out of this text this morning to answer. I'll give you them all up front now, making notes. What is sin? Where did it come from? What has it done to our worlds? And how can we escape it, if at all? So what is sin is easily answered, and it's answered in a sentence, and that's all I'm going to do with it. Sin is simply this. Sin is disobedience to the word of God. Sin is when we rebel against the rule and authority of our creator. When we decide to look around at this world, see everything in it, the vastness and the beauty of creation, including ourselves, and decide, I'm going to ignore God's. 
I'm going to live life my own way, and I'm going to invent a system for how I think the world came into being, whether it's from aliens or big bangs or the evolutionary process. That's what the Bible calls sin, disobedience to the word of God and to his rule and authority. So I have a very simple structure, as I says. That is the answer to what is sin. Our second question is, where does it come from? Remember back in Genesis 2? If you look back, Genesis 2 ends with Adam and Eve walking in a garden paradise, naked and unashamed. The world is good at the end of Genesis 2. In fact, the world is very good at the end of Genesis 2. No death, no problems. But then in verse 3, sorry, chapter 3, verse 1, a new character pops up from nowhere. We read in verse 1 that Satan in the form of a serpent appears. Where does he come from? Well, we're not going to get into the rabbit holes of that question, but let me simply just say this. Isaiah chapter 14 and Ezekiel chapter 28 will give us all the background we need to know. And there are obviously other verses, but they will give us the, background, the simple background we need to know that is this. Satan was once a heavenly being created by God to worship him and to obey him. In those texts we read that he gets proud and arrogant and he wanted... God's power and authority for himself. And so he gathers a group of angels in an effort to overthrow God. But he fails miserably, and he's cast out of God's presence. That's pretty much it. Just so you know, nowhere does the Bible say he's an angel. He's a created being. Apart from that, we're not told that very much more than that. Lots of people want to say, well, when was he created? Was he created before the earth? Was he created on day two or three or four or five? I'm going to give you a guess, my guess, and it's the best I've got, is I think it must have happened after day six of creation, given God had already looked on the world and pronounced it to be good. Okay? Here's the bottom line. The serpent arrives on the scene in the garden, and things start to go wrong pretty quickly. Look how he's described in Genesis 3. He's described as more crafty than any other beast of the field, more subtle, more devious. He's got one aim and one aim only. Destroy the perfection of everything that God has made, especially God's image bearers. Now, most, you know, we're talking to most, you know, People in the street today, and you, you know, if, even if the subject of the devil comes up, people generally roll their eyes, dismiss it. Nothing more than a myth. Again, for those who think the devil is red with horns and carries a pitchfork, sorry to disappoint. Although, I may be surprised, maybe he is, but I've got a sneaky feeling that's not how he goes about the world. People turn him into a joke figure. They turn him into a myth. They say it's just a tale made up to scare children into being obedient to their parents. Again, I don't want to get into all the arguments of this. I just want to say once again, every human being, whatever their belief, 
has to answer two questions. How did everything that exists come into being? And where does evil come from? The Christian believes that everything that's coming into being was created by God, and that evil and the root of evil is laid at the feet of this serpent in Genesis chapter 3. Now, the modern world might not take that explanation seriously, but God takes it seriously. Jesus takes it seriously, as we'll go on to see. The Bible takes it seriously, and billions of Christians continue to take it seriously. So we get the serpent. But notice how he's operating here in the text. Notice how he gets into Eve's head, because that's how he gets into your, to our head. He speaks to her, verse 1, says, Did God actually say to you, you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? Again, a favorite tactic of Satan. He takes a clear scriptural command, and then he seeks to poke holes in it or twist it or undermine it. Look what Eve says to him, 2 and 3. We read that text in 2 and 3. We just sort of pass over it. Here's the problem. In 2 and 3, she's actually misquoting what God said to her and Adam in chapter 2, verses 16 to 17. She doesn't change much, but in verses 2 and 3, she adds the bit about not touching the tree. God never said to Adam and Eve, you can't touch the tree. He never said that. So she doesn't change much, right? But she adds this little bit. I don't know why she does it about not touching the tree. And it's such a small error. You think, who cares? Well, God seems to care. Revelation 22, verses 18 and 19 says this. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, Eve, or anyone takes away from them, Sorry, if anyone adds to them, uh, God will add to them the plagues described in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share, away his share in the tree of life and the holy city which are described in this book. So we can't adapt, twist, change, add, or take away anything from God's word to suit our own desires. That is a sin, punishable by eternal damnation. Every single word in the Bible means something, and it's important, and it's the why God has given us this book. So Eve listens to the lies of Satan. He gets in her head, and then she falls, doesn't she, headlong into sin. Well, how does Satan lie to her? Look at verse 4. He denies the judgment of God. God won't kill you. Come on. God won't kill you, Eve. He loves you. He won't cast you out of his presence for nibbling a piece of fruit. Come on, get serious. A loving God won't send anybody to hell for a little sin like that. Whisper, whisper, whisper. Peck, peck, peck. Working away in the minds. You never had the experience where you Satan's whispering in your ear, look. Do it, mate. Do it. You'll get away with it. God won't, God won't really do anything. And if, 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 you, if you get busted, just say you're sorry on that. Christians love that. You get all forgiven. Everybody else is getting away with it. 
So he comes at us that way, right? So, well, we give in then. I'll sin. And we sin. And we fall. And what does Satan do? Switches it, switches it up, doesn't he? Thought you were a Christian. It's too late to be sorry now. You're finished, mate. God's not going to forgive your sin. In big trouble, mate. And so as human beings, as Christians, we're tempted to downplay the seriousness of our sin on the one hand. And then we've got to remember, sorry, the seriousness of our sin on the one hand, but then we also downplay the fact that God forgives our sin. It's a tight rope to walk. If you're a person tempted to downplay the seriousness of your sin and go, listen, come on, get a grip. It's not that bad. It's not that heavy. And anyway, let me deflect by pointing to him over there. Did you hear what he was doing? Or she's getting up to? If that is you, if that's describing you this morning, you've got to remember this. God judges all sin, no matter how small and unimportant we think it is. He doesn't think it is. Somebody has to pay for our sin. And it is either us or it is Jesus. All right? You cannot measure big and small sins. God's not interested. Now, the second way to answer the devil when he floods us with guilt after we sin is to remind him that God forgives those who genuinely cry out to him in repentance and faith. You're sitting there feeling sorry for yourself, you know, picking fluff out your belly button, saying, God won't forgive me this time, not for this one. That's a lie from the devil. God will forgive us. God forgives us when we turn away from our sin and we turn back to him, even if we've done it for the thousandth time. And so people who think that hell is not real and sin doesn't matter are in for a bit of a shock as we're going to find out in later chapters. God's judgment is real, and it doesn't matter whether you believe in God or not. Let me try and illustrate it. I do not, again, I've used this before, but I'll use it again. I have zero faith in the criminal justice system of the UK. Okay? I think it sucks, and that's all there is to it. I think it's corrupt, and I think it's for elite people at the expense of the poor. I don't believe that some idiot in a wig that doesn't know me or my life or my problems or what I've been through should have the power to sit in a chair and sentence me to whatever he wants to sentence me for whatever crimes they feel I've committed. I don't know this bloke. I'll walk into a courtroom and see some idiot with a wig on looking down at me. I don't know him. Who's he? I don't recognize his power. Now, let's say I say that to him. Do you think he's going to go, oh, fair enough, mate. (laughs) Sorry about that. You're free to go. We won't trouble you again, son. (laughs) If I break the law, it doesn't matter what I think about the judge. Doesn't matter if I believe in his power or not. 
I'm going to get punished. In the same way, every single human being will one day stand before the judgment seat of God and it is quite irrelevant whether you believe in him or not. You will stand before God and you will be sentenced for your sin. And the only lawyer that can get you off the hook is Jesus Christ. Only by repentance and faith and trust in Jesus can we get off the hook. Only through Christ can we escape God's holy judgment. But Satan wants to distract us from this. You won't get punished, mate. Eve, you won't die, hen. Nothing's going to happen. I mean, nothing happened to her, did it? Immediately, did it? She lived 100 years odd. Don't, don't know too many people who've sinned against the Lord and have been zapped by lightning. So sinners get brave, don't they? Satan wants to distract us, and one of the ways he distracts us is he twists the truth. And he'll use any means possible to turn us away from God. He'll undermine the word of God. He'll twist Eve's mind. He'll twist our minds. In, what's interesting in Genesis 3 is this. Notice Satan takes Eve's mind off and focus on everything she had. Where was she in the, at this point in history? In a garden paradise. What did she have to get on and live her life? Everything she needed. Both of them. Each other. Everything. And yet somehow the devil is in her head convincing her there's, that's not enough though. There's more, and not only is there more, but God is holding it back from you. He doesn't want you to have this more. See that? It's what Satan does to all of us. He convinces us, despite all the blessings of our lives, despite all the good things we have in our lives, he tells us, he whispers in our ears, it still isn't enough. We want more. We begin to think, well, hang on, maybe God is holding out on me. Instead of being grateful for our daily bread, we become obsessed with having more and more and more and more, whether we need it or not. And so like Eve, we begin to doubt God's provision and grace toward us. Instead of being thankful, we get bitter, don't we? We get unhappy. We start complaining. We get greedy, we get envious. We're like Israel in the wilderness. Remember? Blessed by manna from heaven. What do they do? Moan and complain. They want to go back to slavery in Egypt. Rather than trust in God's provision for them. They didn't want manna anymore. They wanted steak and chips. They wanted more food. They wanted different food. They wanted bet, better food. I mean, just read about any single biblical character and you'll discover this bitterness within the heart of them. Every single Christian, particularly in the Western world where we're so materialistic, we are obsessed with this. We want more. We want more than God provides. 
And it is a sin, you know, that we're never satisfied. Are you the sort of person, I'm never satisfied with what I've got. I want more things. I want better things. A better life, a better house, a better partner, a better car. Better, 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 better. This is all from Satan, by the way. Every single thing we have comes from God, and every one of us has different kinds of things. Some of us have more money, some of us have less, some of us have a big house, some of us has less. But every single thing we've got from God is enough for us. I'm pretty sure no one in this building is leaving the building starving today because God's not providing for them. And if you are, please come and see me, and we will remedy that situation very quickly. God is constant, sorry, the devil is constantly in our minds. Constantly questioning, is God good enough for you? Is Jesus good enough for you? You should have more, by the way. You deserve more. Even if you've got nothing. I was thinking about this the other day. Even if you've got nothing. Imagine this, even if you're skint. Let's say you've got tenor in your bank. Let's say you've got five... Let's say you've got nothing in your bank, right? And you're struggling. Tin of beans, if you're lucky, in the cupboard. Even if that's all you've got, but you've got Jesus, you've got everything. I'd rather be there than a mansion in Morningside, cupboards bursting with food, but Christless. And we'll go, oh yeah, no, I feel dead spiritual. No, I, I agree, Mez. That's how I feel. And we feel, we say that, don't we? Probably most of us would say that. But the bottom line is this. We don't live like that, though, do we? If you, we have nothing, and we don't, we all have something. If we've got Jesus, we've got everything. Are you saved? Are you saved? Well, praise God that your spiritual bank account will never run dry. Praise God that even if you die a pauper, you die a child of God. You die loved by your creator who's going to provide for each of us into eternity. Adam forgot it. Eve forgot it. Every human being that's ever lived forgot it. Have we forgotten it? And if we have, we need to remind ourselves. At that moment in the garden, in verse 4, this, the woman had a choice. I'm going to do, believe the word of God, believe the word of the devil. Notice what he does again in verse 5. The devil, as he whispers in her ears, God knows that when you eat of this fruit, your eyes will be opened, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. In verse 5, there's still time to back off. She can still choose to walk away. But again, what she do? She listens to him. She takes a second look, a longer look at the forbidden fruit. Again, that's how the devil operates. First he comes for the mind. You know, watch this movie. Date this person you know you shouldn't. 
Then he plays, then he comes for the, well, you know, he comes to play around with it in our mind till it builds up and it builds up and it builds up. And now it's all we can think about. And then we just fall into sin. We give in to our wicked desires. And then we get the saddest verse in the whole of the Bible, I think, in 6 and 7, don't we? The woman saw the tree was good for food. It was a delight to her, the eyes. The tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she gave some to her husband. The idiot. I've just added that bit. And they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So here we go. From here on in, the human race is about to go downhill rapidly. Sin enters the world through the serpent and the foolish choice of the woman. The woman, sorry. What? That's the second answer. The second question. The third question is this: What does sin do to us? What? Sin, sorry, sin do to us? What are the results of sin? What are the consequences of sin? Well, if we look in verse 14, the serpent is cursed and made to crawl on his belly. Okay. The the woman is not cursed. But if we read the text, instead of being blessed through childbirth and in her marriage, that will now become a hardship of pain and turmoil. Adam's punishment is that he's going to work hard, but it doesn't matter how, much, how hard he works, he's going to struggle to provide for his family because of the curse of the grounds. And both of them would taste the sting of death as they're driven out of Eden. And so the end result of that one stupid decision she made that day has had far more devastating consequences than they could ever have imagined. Because of Adam and Eve, we are all born under the curse of sin and under the shadow of God's wrath. Everything wrong with the world, particularly with us, is a direct result of this action. Everything we hate about ourselves can be traced back to Adam and Eve. So we've got that consequence, but one of the biggest consequences of all happens in verse 24. God drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard to the tree of life. No longer would they walk in peace with God. They're banished from his presence. The biggest problem we've got in the world is not depression or addiction or financial worries or relational concerns, the biggest problem we've got in the world is spiritual. We are separated from our Creator because of our sin. And the Bible is clear. Sin has consequences. Whether you feel them or not or see them or not immediately is irrelevant. Sin has consequences. Everything we do has a consequence. If I break the law, sooner or later I'll pay the price. I might get away with it for 20 years, but get caught just once. Maybe some people escape human justice, don't we? See it all the time. Rapists, pedophiles, murderers, traffickers. We see them, don't we, getting away with it. But they're not getting away with it, really. Because God sees all things, and one day they'll pay the price. One bad decision in Genesis 3 leads to what we live in today. You think about some of the bad decisions you've made in your life. 
Think on it. Think on the bad decisions you and I have made in our lives and the damage they've done. Most of the damage, I'm going to bet, we don't even see or realize because we just sort of damage each other and then move on. Sin is serious. God takes it seriously. And every single person who lives on this earth will stand before him and explain themselves. And we'll all find out quickly enough that with, along with Adam and Eve, God will banish us, but at this point, to an eternal hell. I mean, that's hard, isn't it? Sin is rebellion. Sin comes from the devil. Sin has far-reaching, terrible consequences. Kills families, kills marriages, kills relationships, kills churches. Ultimately kills our relationship with the Lord. Dark, 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 dark. Until we find the chink of light in verse 15. Which answers our final question. Can we escape? Or how do we escape from this? Or from sin? It's a strange verse. Look at verse 15. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. God here is speaking to the devil. Language is a bit maybe old-fashioned. What does enmity mean, for instance? Well, enmity simply means this. It means to become a deadly enemy of. If you're at enmity with your next-door neighbor, yeah? You want to tan his windows and give him a good licking, right? That's what enmity means. Yes, Benny? God is saying the serpent and the woman, will f- the seed of the serpent which is the demonic world, and the seed of the woman, the human race, will forever now be deadly enemies. Through the seed of the woman, though, God is going to raise up somebody who's going to reverse all the damage of the fall. And that's where Jesus is going to come into the equation. Out of the seed of woman, Jesus will be born. And he won't listen to the sermon. Sorry, the serpent. He won't disobey the Father. He'll live his life perfectly as Adam should have. He'll offer up his own life as a sacrifice just to redeem this fallen world. In other words, verse 15 is the escape hatch. If you look closely in verse 15, it's not just the woman and the serpent who's going to be enemies. It's the offspring of both. Really important we understand that from now on in Genesis 3, the world is separated into two two parts. Actually, two seeds. This is how you can categorize the whole human race even today. There are two seeds in the world. You're going to have the seed of the woman, the seed of the devil. The seed of the woman, the children of God, the seed of the serpent, the children of the devil. The seed of the serpent have only one mission in life, and that is to keep the world blind to their sinfulness. They don't want God to be reconciled to sinners. They hate God. Every soul that turns away from God is a victory for the hounds of hell. The demonic realm, they don't care how they achieve their objective. They'll convince people there's no God. They'll convince people there's no heaven, there's no hell. They'll convince people that the Bible is a load of crap. They'll teach people that the church is not for them. They'll convince people that they're too good 
to confess their sins. They'll convince people they're too bad to be saved. They'll even convince people that they don't exist. And all of this and more just to keep the human race away from its creator. The Bible says there is joy in heaven, joy in heaven when one sinner repents. But let me tell you something, there is just as much joy in hell when a person tumbles into eternity as an unforgiven sinner. Look at verse 21 and we'll end with this. God made for Adam and Eve for his, and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Blood now is spilled for the first time in human history. Animals die to cover the nakedness of the man and the woman. Blood is shed to cover their shame. And it's no accident that the first blood sacrifice in the Bible comes hot on the heels of the promise of verse 15. The sacrifice is a sign and symbol of the blood and death of Christ to come. Look, the world's a mess. And if you tell the truth, so are you. So am I. Are things as bad as they could be? No. But they could be a lot better, couldn't they? Maybe we'll look back over our life, some of us, older than others, with a lot of regrets. A lot of decisions, if we could take it back, we would. But we can't. Maybe we've damaged a whole lot of people. And we think, there's no way, no hope for someone like me. That's not true. There is a way out for everybody who will come to Jesus Christ, confess their sins, and beg for his forgiveness. We will be saved. Will it make our lives perfect? No. Will it solve all the problems we've got in our life? No. Will it undo all the damage that we've done in our life? No. Will it mean that we don't have to face the consequences for our sin? No. But it does mean that our soul will be saved. Here's the simple fact I'll leave this here this morning. You're a sinner, I'm a sinner. You know it. Cut the nonsense. We know deep down we're not good people. We're capable of good things, but generally we're pretty horrible. And the Bible says this. Our sins have to be paid for. So you've got a choice this morning. Jesus pays or you pay. And it really is as simple as that. And let me please beg you, Don't go to God's. Don't go to the grave arrogantly thinking, I'll sort this out. Because you won't. May God have mercy on all of us. Amen.